Well, good afternoon. I want to add my welcome to, uh, to that of Tom's. The title of our sermon today is War and Peace, but it won't be that long. So, as you know, it's, uh, it's 100 years since the end of World War I. This is Armistice Day, which we celebrate. It's, uh, it's centenary when on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, a formal agreement between Germany and the Allies came into effect. And so it seems to me a good day to reflect on this topic of war and peace. It's a massive topic and we're not going to be able to cover it all. I'm not going to pretend to. But it is good for us to consider how uh, particularly we find ourselves these days in the midst of apparently opposing ideas on the topic of war and peace. Uh, Deep in the Australian psyche, I think, there is a profound respect for those who go to war, for the defence of their country. It's not universal, but it is very, very strong. So uh, crowds at Anzac Day services go bigger and bigger every year. Tourism to places like Gallipoli or Pozier or even the Kokoda Track is now so big that it's actually causing problems for local communities in those areas. In, in these kinds of settings, war is seen as something noble. Such is our regard for our, uh, our, our soldiers that the, the, the acronym ANZAC really sort of means war hero. That would be a, a kind of a rough translation of how it's understood. And then if we were to turn to our Bibles, and let's imagine you're a first-time reader of the Bible, you start to see that wars are everywhere in the Bible. You just have to look at the books of Joshua and Judges and anything with King David in it, and there's a war. And then there's always you know, the Babylonians and all of the ites. You know, the ites, the, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the, you know, the Gergashites, my personal favourites. They're always the bad guys in all of those Bible wars. And so on first reading of the Bible, it seems to us that, well, God is okay with war. For me personally, in my life as a Christian, that has become a little unsettling, a little disturbing almost. It did, uh, as I grew up in a time with strong anti-war sentiment, particularly around the Vietnam War, that Tells you a little bit about my age, I suppose. As a boy, I remember a a very earnest conversation around the family dinner table one night when uh, we were discussing the possibility that my older brother might go into the ballot to be conscripted and sent to Vietnam, fighting a war that no one wanted. Around about that time, of course, we saw protest singers. Uh, Bob Dylan sang Blowing in the Wind. Uh, Barry Maguire sang On the Eve of Destruction. A few years later, but very poignantly, uh, Red Gum, uh, A March in the Green, in the light green, I was only 19, and uh, my personal favourite, uh, Midnight Oil, Armistice Day, a real movement against this idea of war. It was actually a cultural shift. Somewhere behind that, perhaps, was the Jesus movement of the 60s, and then certainly from the 70s onwards, a much more mature Christian pacifism arose all reflecting the teaching of Jesus, who said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. 
So as Bible-believing Christians, we might very well experience tension around this idea of war and peace. And our goal today is to try to resolve some of that tension in a way that gives us comfort and assurance that God is not divided in himself, that God's not flip-flopping between different views about war and peace. Instead, what we're going to see, in fact, that God's overarching purpose as we read the entire Bible narrative is actually to bring peace out of war. And in the end, we'll actually see that there is indeed very good reason to honour those who serve their country in time of war. So let's begin with the backstory of the Bible. What I mean by that is that there are some things that must have happened in the background in Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3 that we're not told about. They must have happened. Uh, you, know, you know this is a thing when uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden the serpent slithers into the garden and starts speaking to Eve and Eve does not go, oh my goodness, it's a snake and it's talking to me. It's like, oh, yeah, I know who the snake is. There's, there's some knowledge, prior knowledge, that must be going on there. And then, again, somehow in a perfect world, created without evil, somehow the serpent has become evil, that he would want to tempt Adam and Eve to draw them away from God. How did that happen? Already in Genesis 3, there is the sign here that there is an opposition to God. Somehow or other, God is at war by the time you come to Genesis 3. But how is that so? How do we know that? Well, actually, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, and other places in the New Testament, we, we learn this backstory of how it is that God is at war because an angelic being named Satan decided that he would rebel against God, that he would usurp his power. Already a third of the angelic beings joined with Satan in opposition with God. And so when the snake slithers into the garden, that's the narrative of how humanity, in the persons of Adam and Eve, also chose to rebel against God by asserting their independence. In other words, they're saying, we will be God, thank you very much, in our life. They joined the revolution too. That's what sin is. We imagine ourselves to be God, and we reject his rule. And in case anyone was wondering, well, what's that going to look like and how will that go, you just flip the page to Genesis chapter 4. The very first thing that happens outside the garden is Cain kills his brother Abel. Not only is God at war with Satan, wars and conflict seem to be endemic to life outside the garden on earth. So here's the key idea. The wars in the Bible reflect God's greater war. They are symptoms of it and they are also part of it. God is engaged in a deadly struggle to defend his rule and his creation against Satan. And the human history that we read is actually the battlefield or part of it. That's why in the Old Testament we read God commanding Israel to go to war with other nations. God leads Israel into battle. God is described in the Old Testament as the mighty warrior. Some wars are used by God to advance his salvation purpose in history. It's a little disturbing to say that, isn't it? 
hang on a minute, do you mean that God can approve, God could sponsor war? Well, in parts of the Bible, he does. When Israel was a functioning theocracy, they were supposed only to enter into the battlefield after having consulted God. Their battles were actually God's wars. God's war was viewed as an act of judgment and Israel was simply carrying out God's wishes. It seemed that the ordinary everyday laws of don't kill and love your neighbour were suspended by God within the boundaries of war. I want to say this only seems to have been the case when Israel were functioning as a true theocracy, that is, where God was their king, where the people were obedient to God. So we're not saying that every human war, you know, there's always a good side, God's side, God is on our side, and then there's the bad guys and God is not on their side, that's Satan's side. We're not saying that. Sometimes in the, sometimes in the Bible that is true, but very often the war itself is a weapon of Satan to undermine God's rule. Okay, Satan can applaud when humans just start killing each other. There doesn't need to be good guys and bad guys. Satan can just gloat over the horrors of war and use war itself as some kind of weapon against God. And as we continue reading our Bibles, the Bible finishes with a great victory of God over Satan. Satan and all evil is fully and utterly defeated. In the end, complete justice is done and God shares his righteousness and his victory with all his people. Okay, We've spent, what, three months, was it, reading the book of Revelation together? We know how this ends. God is at war to restore peace. Indeed, God wins peace out of war. I know that seems a little counterintuitive. God assures us that all of these wars will end in peace. More than that, it's very important for us to to grasp this reality. God's peace is actually the foundational reality of all creation. This world is not a kind of an endless yin and yang battle of good and evil resulting in, well, the best we could hope for is a balance between good and evil. We are not caught up in an interplay eternally between two equal and opposite forces, good versus bad, black versus white, God versus Satan. They are not equal. Already and throughout history, God rules and he reigns and he is carrying out his purposes, notwithstanding the existence of evil, but in fact using that to achieve his ends somehow. God brings peace out of war as Satan is defeated. That's really the message of Isaiah 62 and 63 that we're reading a bit earlier. And hopefully you've got your Bible still open there. If you haven't, it's worth opening up. What we're reading here is a prophetic vision where Isaiah sees God's victory won. And first of all, in Isaiah 62 verses 11 and 12, we actually see God's commitment to rescue his people. Uh, So I'm reading from verse 11. The Lord has made a proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see, your saviour comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. 
and you'll be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. So God promises here and actually throughout the Bible that he will save a people, a people that he seeks after. God is out looking for them to draw them to himself. And this is the people that he will make holy. He will buy them back out of slavery. That's what that word redeemed means. But the really interesting thing is, okay, who is it? Who's going to do this? And we meet in Isaiah 63... God's warrior who will rescue his people. At verse 1 of 63, Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? And then the warrior speaks. He says, It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress. The warrior replies again, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. It's quite an astounding picture of our Messiah, isn't it? We don't normally think of Jesus as a warrior. We don't normally think of Jesus going to the cross as a turning point in the war. Maybe that's because it doesn't look much like a victory when the warrior actually gives his life to die. But the picture that we're looking at here in Isaiah 63 is not the cross, but it is the mighty warrior returning from battle This is what happens after the cross. This is Jesus' resurrection and, as it were, victory entry celebrated into heaven. The cross is the uh, the battleground. This is the victory parade that we're looking at here in Isaiah 63. What kind of victory is it? Well, it's actually God's battle in the spiritual war that is overlaid with imagery that Israel could actually resonate with. It's framed in terms of Israel defeating the Edomites at Bosra, but the the actual battle that's being described, I think, is the battle against Satan. That's the war behind the battle. God's vengeance is carried out against sin. His war is not against people, but against Satan. And finally, in this prophetic vision, Isaiah tells of God's motivation, which is his compassion for his people. So verse 7, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he's done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their saviour. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So God's goal for history, its fulfilment, the end point, is peace. Because of his great love and his compassion, he doesn't abandon his people to sin and to Satan. Instead, he's winning them back 
to himself. You know that when a child suffers, the parents suffer with the child, don't they? Do you notice what God says here? He says, when my people suffer, I suffer with them. God's not far away and disinterested in our lives. As we go through the tough stuff, God is right there with us, suffering alongside us, as it were, sharing in that. In his love and mercy, God is with his people in their midst and ultimately he saves them. He rescues them. That's who he is. So what we've been saying so far as we've considered this passage from Isaiah is that the cross is actually the ultimate battle scene in the Bible. And it is going to be very helpful for us as we think about war and peace to make sure that we locate ourselves correctly in relation to that great battle. We live after the battle. The cross is done and won. And yet, we have not seen the final realisation of that victory. We don't see peace breaking out all over the world. We find ourselves actually in a parallel situation to what happened on Armistice Day in 1918. Here's a photograph. It was taken probably at about 6am on the morning of the 11th of November, 1918. And it records a meeting that took place at 5am is when the meeting started on the rollway carriage in the middle of a forest about 60 kilometres north of Paris. And in that early dawn, representatives of Germany, of France and of England signed a document that affected the truce. That was the ceasefire document that would permanently end World War I. It was signed then, but that armistice would not come into effect until 11 a.m., six hours later. And so for a six-hour period of time, fighting went on. Bombs were blowing up and guns were being fired, even though the war was as good as over, even though the victory of the Allied forces was assured. It, it had been signed and sealed. We find ourselves in a similar situation today. The battle has already been won on the cross. The war is over. And victory is assured. We're as good as free from the bondage to sin and to death and to Satan. But not quite yet. Because the guns are still firing. The fighting in the war seems to be continuing. It's going on. The kingdom of God is triumphing, but the peace is still to come. We are yet to enjoy everything that it will mean for Christ to have died on the cross to triumph over death and to utterly defeat Satan. We will experience that when Jesus returns. And that explains a lot. It explains a whole lot about that tension that we've been talking about, what we experience in the world now. The kingdom of Jesus is absolutely the kingdom of peace. It is the place where its citizens love their neighbours as they are loved themselves. The values of that new kingdom mean that, following the teaching and the model of Jesus, we turn the other cheek. If someone wants to rip us off, we help them. We forgive and forget. That's the life 
of the kingdom of God, ruled by the Prince of Peace. That's how we should live. And if you find yourself in conflict with someone, then the way of the kingdom is to seek reconciliation. Can you work out a way to come together and sort it out? Find forgiveness. See if you can. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? Jesus also teaches that in this life we have a dual obligation. We are members of the new kingdom of God. There is, however, this overlap. While we're waiting for the peace to take effect, we are still in a situation where the war is not finally over, spiritually speaking. When Jesus taught that we should pay taxes to Caesar and give ourselves fully to God, he actually recognised this dual obligation. We had an obligation to Caesar and an obligation to God. When Peter was asked, does your master pay the temple tax? Peter quickly scurried back to Jesus in Matthew 17. To Jesus, are we paying the temple tax or not? Jesus sent Peter out to the ATM, get the money, and well, it was fishing, but you know, got the money out of the fish's mouth and paid the temple tax. Why? Because the way of Jesus is actually to obey the rules, to honour the leaders, to subject himself to the government of the day. We have that duty. The people of Israel found themselves in a kind of a similar situation when they were in Babylon. They are still the people of God in Babylon. But they're not to worship the foreign gods. They are not to lose their identity or their hope in the promises of God's salvation. But they are to seek the welfare of the city in which they live. They had a dual obligation. And so it's because of this dual obligation that some Christians find themselves in the armed forces defending their nation and serving their people. You know, it says in Romans chapter 13 that all governments and authorities that exist are the ones that have been established by God. They are instruments of God's will, says Paul. And so just as Christians owe a duty to their nation, it's possible that Christians may find themselves in that place of war, engaged in a war under the authority of a nation's leadership. Now, if we had four hours today, we could talk about the just war theory. That is, what are the kinds of wars that actually would be right to engage in? Is there such a thing as a war that's better off to fight in the war than not? Could be the case. And if you're in the war, how do you fight? Rather than do that, can I just refer you to a great book, uh, Oliver O'Donovan's book, Just War Revisited, is going to set out all of those sorts of issues in a really great summary of uh, all the thinking. This is, a, this is an age-old uh, conversation that, we're, that we've bought into tonight. Rather than talking about what kinds of conditions might we enter into war under, on this day of remembrance, I'd like to call us to think about the people who've given up their lives for the hope that we would be able to live as we do. We live as we do. We've turned up to church on a lovely, warm November afternoon because some people before us thought it was 
right to give their lives to serve us. We didn't ask them to do that, but they chose that. Their motive, I think, was similar to that of Jesus Christ. You remember at the Last Supper what Jesus said as he spoke with his disciples. The words are on the screen. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In John 15, Jesus is referring to his own sacrifice. Jesus has loved them as the Father has loved them, and now he's going to love them all the way to the cross and beyond. He will lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus' intent is actually that his disciples, his followers, will live in exactly the same way, self-sacrificially, just as he has. And it is, I think, that same quality of love that inspires many who serve in the armed forces. They may not necessarily risk their lives every day, but when they sign up, they embrace the possibility that one day indeed their life will be on the line. They set aside their personal freedoms, they set aside their personal prerogatives for the sake of ordinary people like us. They serve us. And for this, I believe we owe them a debt of honour and gratitude. The truth is, though, you and I don't need to join the army to live that way. Already this is the way of Jesus, to give up your life for others. There is no greater love than Jesus' love that set aside all his personal freedoms, all his glory, all that was his as God. And he set that aside for the good of us. And it is that quality of love that we are to practice every day. It may never be recognised with a medal of honour. It doesn't matter. So we live in overlapping kingdoms, the kingdom of peace, where we love, where we forgive, where we turn the other cheek. That's our default position. It's what we do pretty much every day. We are peacemakers, exercising the sacrificial love of Jesus. But there is an overlap and there is a dual obligation which could possibly, under some circumstances, see us laying down our lives for the sake of others, just as Jesus did. So whether it's war or whether it's peace, let the love that Jesus showed for you on the cross lead you to lay down your life for others. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are humbled before your grace, the kindness that you have shown to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his self-sacrificial love. Thank you for the peace that he has won for us. Thank you for the peace that he has won, which in fact reorders all of creation. We ask that we might live that way. Amen.